Founded in 2005 by artist Noah Becker, White Hot Magazine is one of the leading platforms for contemporary art. I like George Kondo. I've always liked George Kondo. What a great artist. And here's some audio of George Kondo today on the White Hot Magazine Art World Podcast. I'm your host, Noah Becker. I remember when I got my first set of oil paints, it was very messy. And it uh, involved a lot of turpentine and oil and paint spreading all around the house. And, you know, my parents would be sort of, try to keep it all in your bedroom. Try not to get it all over the place. And so drawing was the kind of thing where you could have a notebook, make a drawing in it, shut the notebook, put it in your desk drawer. Nobody would see it. It's much more of a private kind of thing. Whereas painting requires sitting out, letting it dry. Anyone can come by and see what you're doing. So I always loved drawing for the privacy of it. It's a cleaner way of making art. Let me see. Uh, right. So this is how I started drawing. Working on some theme of maybe like the sort of maybe this will be like the sleeping bus driver. I kind of draw like you're walking through the forest, you know, where you don't really know where you're going and um, you just start from some point and randomly travel through the paper until you get to a place where you finally reach your destination. And, um, and I think that um, with drawing, sometimes I'll just think, well, I'm just going to start with a, a human head. That'll be my my earth or a personage of some sort and then I'm just going to expand it into uh, whatever it's going to take me to and and I like to work quickly I don't see why it takes so long to make drawings I mean basically you're you're working like the way a performer plays a violin let's just say like there's going to be a slow movement a saraband or something of that nature, and then there's going to be a presto vivace. But you can't miss any of the notes in either one. And so the tempo is very important when it comes to art. And I think some art has like a very slow tempo, and some art has a very upbeat tempo. But it's not that easy to figure out on an upbeat tempo looking piece if it was actually made very slowly or if it was made very quickly. Sometimes you look at a de Kooning painting of a woman and you might think that he just smashed the whole thing together and like, you know, right away. But on the other hand, it may have taken him months of just very slight, you know, uh, meticulous changes until it all just came together the way he wanted it. So you never know when you make a drawing or when you make a painting where it's going to take you.
drink? When I grew up in New Hampshire, a, a sort of very rural, mountainous place, and then my family moved to another very small sort of apple orchard, lots of cows, little town um, near Boston. And we were going to St. Mary's Church. And I came back and I made this drawing of a crucifixion. It was really the first drawing that my mother kept of my work. And she said, you know, I can't believe you had such a morbid sensibility as a child. You never did stick figures. You never did like, you know, a big sun and a little head, you know, with a, you know, big heads and a stick figure type things. It was always a very kind of serious approach to, to drawing. For me, it was always about like, I think even when I first began uh, making drawings, a way of expressing my feelings. And uh, I had a kind of a profound feeling of this strange crucifixion with uh, Christ on the cross with blood dripping down. But I interpreted it in a strange way, my own, my own sort of way where they were all, the thorns were sort of on his crown of thorns were sort of abstracted into a background uh, sort of abstraction to a certain degree. But then as I developed, you know, I started drawing dinosaurs. I loved drawing dinosaurs when I was six or seven. And uh, my grandfather was a doctor. So I would go to his practice, to his office, and he would give me his letterhead. And I'd sit there and draw dinosaurs for him. And uh, he was Italian. He barely spoke English, to tell you the truth. Um, and I'd try to draw them as accurately as I could. And then just to be sure that he didn't think that, you know, I was presuming that a dinosaur was bright red or bright green, I would write not authentic color <laughs> next to it, just so that it was clear that this was the way I believed they looked, but this is not necessarily the color. And I hadn't really ever thought about showing those works until we framed them. And I said, you know, in some ways, they're very concrete early statements that led into my concept about, let's just say, jump you know, 40 years ahead or 30 years ahead to this idea of fake old masters. And uh, the sort of not authentic color leading to fake old masters was a very sort of bizarre you know, realization later. And then I started to get into fishing with my brother, and I did a really accurate drawing of a sunfish for my mother, which she saved. And most of all the art I have was saved by my mom. And um, I think it was a result of being rejected from sports that uh, she thought to put me in a painting class, saying, well, you love painting, you love art, why don't you do that? And so um, every Saturday I would go take painting classes at the, like the YWCA, it wasn't even the YMCA. So it was a bit humiliating, you know, with my brother on the baseball team and me going there and being this sort of nerdy kid doing drawings of uh, clipper ships and things of that nature. And then um, I think by the time I got to be a teenager, I started really taking it seriously and starting to expose myself to literature about art. And one of the first books I read about art was Gertrude Stein's book on Picasso. And that was a very seminal moment for me in terms of the belief that even he was very young 
when he started, you know, I discovered that, geez, Picasso was like six or seven years old when he was making these incredible works of art. Um, so I could maybe have a chance, I can do it. I like doing this stuff, you know? And, uh, but I could see how he had this European training and how in America there was no European training. Back in the 60s, everything was about minimalism, everything was about pop art. And so I think it was at that point that I realized that art was more than just representation. It was a kind of a, uh, a trip into your mind and what you could see in there and how you could materialize it in the form of a visual experience. By the time I reached college, I thought I've done hundreds and hundreds of drawings. I'm so immersed into it. And simultaneously at that point, I began studying classical music. Once I started to um, feel like there was, you know, I don't really know if I'm going to be an artist when I grow up or what I'm going to do, but I know I love it. And um, I know I can't do anything else, but at the same time, I'd love to understand more about music. So I was playing classical music and learning a lot of Bach and, and um, a lot of Renaissance music. So by the time college came around, when I was 17 or 18, I decided that I didn't want to take painting classes. I didn't want to be criticized by teachers. I didn't want them to tell me, like, you know, listen, you need to start at the beginning. And, and just to go back to that one thing about academic um, training that artists like Picasso, Matisse, and Cezanne had, and what they rebelled against, artists from my generation, our sort of first real, let's call it classical training, was to begin from abstraction. And I began with Kandinsky and Mondrian and some of the really wild abstract paintings that were happening, either futurist you know, sculptures, Boccioni and these people, and then moved from abstraction into realism. So it was a complete reverse process from the way things happened in the late sort of 19th century into the early 20th century. And I think the mid 20th century was going from abstraction into realism. And so um, I started thinking a lot about how to take realism to another level, as opposed to, say, representation. And um, musically, you know, I understood, so by the time I got to college and I was studying music theory, and I understood exactly how music was composed, that you could hear it, and it sounded like it all made sense, but when you really read it and studied it and realized how rigid of a, um, a sort of formal uh, construction it really was, it, at that point I realized music was not free enough for me to be really, let's just say, any kind of exponential player in the world of music. It was something, one thing to be an interpreter, and to play Bach and to play Renaissance music. Another thing to actually compose music, when you study Beethoven's string quartets, you realize these things are practically like science. This is like physics. And um, art was more uh, natural to me.
it's such a mad, crazy world these days that everybody I draw is kind of a lunatic. All these various components of, of music, art, and I would say philosophy, all started to become a um, sort of like if you could imagine a brain to be sort of like a television, where you know you can just switch channels uh, instantly, and to try to find a way to uh, create an iconic image out of this sort of interrelationship of all these different thoughts, uh, philosophies, languages, and um, even musical structures, like the idea of variations in music. And I thought, well, there are variations that you could start to work with in paintings. And there are different time zones in art that could be equally interchangeable, that it doesn't have to be from today. Today could be you know, 100 years from now, and today could be like a million years ago. It doesn't really matter. What really matters is what's there on the canvas at one moment. And so I started to think that, you know, taking anything that I was sort of uh, subjected to or was involved with, like from the position of a, uh, from memory, whatever came through my mind, whatever I remembered, it may have been a, um, a constellation of different kinds of paintings all at once. Like all of a sudden I'd think of Velazquez and I would think of the way he painted uh, some fabric. But then, you know, that fabric and the way he painted it could be applied to a completely different subject. And, um, and then you could set it in a background that felt like a sky out of a Poussin painting. And you could get this sort of sweetness of a Fragonard and the harshness of Picasso. And you could interchange all of these languages simultaneously. And the, the thing that was happening at, in the 80s was this, I think someone like Polka in the late 70s and everything, he started to lay out various images at the same time so that they were like overlays of images. And um, Picabia did it in the beginning, um, but I wanted to find a way that all these images would combine themselves into one thing that would bring the recognition of many different things to people who saw it. So they might look at it and say, oh, this is really influenced by Goya, and, but yet Goya never would have painted that. Or this has this cubistic uh, sort of qualities of Picasso, but it's applied to psychology as opposed to the psychology of a figure. Or, and I think the most um, consistent thing in my work is this idea of, of humanity, of finding a way to represent the human uh, consciousness in 
the representation through a portrait. And so that portrait could represent what's not only the exterior appearance of that person, but what's going through their mind and what emotional states could be happening um, to them and within them. And so you might see a train go by and two people chatting on the train and one laughing and then the next passenger is sitting there sort of crying and if you combine those two uh, emotions in one single figure you've got that kind of cubistic look at things but it's not seeing one object from all different angles it's seeing one uh, sort of or many different emotional states in a single object. In the works like of the double portraits they're called, double head portraits, you see a kind of a sometimes a very realistic figure sort of in profile next to a very sort of abstracted cubistic type figure or you'll see something like in um, a piece that we're showing called The Prisoner where he's got this really scary face and he's locked in a kind of a almost like a cage and the shadow of himself is in the foreground sort of staring at who he is today and his um, is a kind of an existential type of situation where he, he, he he's, it's either the shadow that's really him or it's the visual you know sort of representation of him that's really him it's one or the other and most of the drawings, like the bankers that I'm going to show, they have this kind of hystericized sort of um, triple personality, somewhere between conniving, greedy, uh, you know, love of money, and uh, very sort of sneaky, sort of happy at the same time. So you really don't know where they're coming from. You don't know if they're just being nice because they want your money, or if they're actually, you know, uh, you know, a sort of a, an evil <laughs> entity who's smiling, you know, while they're, you know, uh, while they're screwing you, you know. <laughs> so, I mean, that can happen. And then to turn, you know, negatives into positives, like whatever is to consider to be a low form of art or, you know, a negative to a certain degree. And this sort of, you know, just the ordinary characters that make up our lives, like whether it's the janitor or the bus driver or the school teacher or the uh, or the principal or whether it's the uh, the the mailman or, or or the truck driver, and these are not the glamorous people that you see on the covers of Vogue magazine, but they are what the world is composed of, and to give them a chance, you know, to sort of give them a spot. In the, uh, in the world is, I think, what I always admired about Rembrandt to a certain degree, that he began with these really big commissions, and then as he ended his life towards, you know, he limited his palette to a very sort of three or four different colors of browns and blacks, and, um, and everybody just has this real soulful they're not glamorous, they're not beautiful people anymore, especially not as self-portraits, but you can see the world that they live through on their face. And um, I think that's what sort of happens, you know, and uh, in my work is that you want to sort of feel the soul and the humanity of that 
character, even if he's just a fictional one. At a certain moment, you know, I started to think to myself, why would there be, or why should there be this hierarchy between a drawing as a lesser form of art than a painting? I mean, there are connoisseurs of drawing who love only drawings, and then there are those, those who only want paint. Like, you'll walk into the Louvre, and you'll see the major paintings of Jericho's Raft of the Medusa, or this one or that one. And, um, David and all these guys. But then you could also look at their drawings in a small cabinet, you know, like, uh, and think, wow, their drawings were so good. Van Dyck's drawings are amazing, but mostly you'll only see his paintings. So I thought, you know, I love drawing just as much as painting, so why not just make your paintings from your drawings, but literally have there be no uh, defined sort of um, hierarchy between the two uh, mediums. And so quite often the paint will be like I'll match the colors with pastel. So you really can't tell if it's pastel or if it's paint or if it's a, a line of a black line made with a paintbrush leading into a line drawn in charcoal and just start to make what I started to call drawing paintings that were equal in form and, and content to some degree and medium was basically about the medium being equal and allowed for a lot of freedom because when you're painting the human figure, you know, there's a lot of structural, anatomical structural things that you need to um, consider in terms of the volumes and the tonalities. But when you're drawing, you can just sort of freehand out uh, the human figure and then combine that with painting that has nothing to do with the human figure. You get this figurative abstraction that comes out of it that's equal in form and in uh, meaning. That there's no real difference between um, figurative painting and abstract painting because it's all painting to begin with. And um, it's sort of like hieroglyphics in a sense that you look at them and you know that there are those that can interpret those hieroglyphics and tell you exactly what the symbols all mean. But I think 99.9% .9 of the world will look at them as, you know, a sort of pictorial language. And uh, I think that's what uh, it is, you know. It's a pictorial language that you put together in your mind what the meanings of those particular images really are. I think it's the viewer who really decides what's going on in the artwork, not the maker. There'll be one called Silver Mass that's a drawing painting that was a, um, a big canvas that I just painted this sort of mass shape in silver. And then um, I liked the way it sat on the canvas. It just held the canvas by itself. And then I used charcoal, black charcoal and white, um, white charcoal to draw into it. And they were two kind of contradictory forms as well. Like a lot of the... Um, a lot of what I like to do as an artist is a very contradictory kind of uh, languages in painting where 
most artists wouldn't do that because if they were going to do an abstract painting, it would really be an abstract painting. They would never have figures scrawled about on it. Or if it was going to be a figurative painting, it wouldn't be set in an abstract uh, sort of expressionist or action painting-like setting. So you have these contradictions that add up to something. And um, I suppose that is what is, uh, for me, exciting in the sense that you don't have to follow any rules as a painter. You don't have to, if you're making an abstract painting, it doesn't mean eventually it can't morph into a figurative one or the other way around. Like a figure becomes much more abstract than even just as simple, you know, as abstract as you can get. There are great abstract painters, there's no doubt. I mean, Ad Reinhardt was a great abstract painter. And, but to take an Ad, Ad Reinhardt-like background or a Joseph Albers-like background and start to draw uh, the figure onto it and sort of, it, it's sort of an irreverent way of just cracking through the formalities of um, what certain artists felt or maybe believed that they had to do. The cartoon is a very uh, bizarre weapon against, um, strangely enough, against the sort of um, intellectual concept of what our, uh, you know, sort of supposedly high art culture is all about. For example, when I did the Kanye West album cover of The Dark Twisted Fantasy, I used a sort of a cartoon language in this painting of, of this interracial couple. And um, that idea of an interracial couple on the cover of an album was something that had never been done. You either see one or the other, or you see these, um, but you never see that. And to use a sort of childlike way of expressing that blew so many fuses that they really had to ban it. They couldn't put it out because it was too, like, it was too close to a, um, a language that kids were familiar with, but the subject was too um, politically charged for, uh, for children to say understand. So, and then it also infuriates, um, it infuriates uh, 
the older generation to see, like, I guess, I suppose they subjectify the idea of their child making something like that would be, you know, not something they could show in school to their teacher. And so the, the cartoon is a strange weapon in that sense. And uh, whenever it's used for any kind of mock religious purposes, it turns into a complete nightmare. I mean, you know, it happened in France and it happened, uh, and it's, it's, it's one of those things that just, you know, is just utterly no. You cannot do that. If you're going to represent God, he has to be represented in some very respectful way. But if you represent it as a cartoon, all of a sudden you're enemy number one to the world. And it's an odd thing because kids grow up with cartoons. Everybody laughs at cartoons. And, these are, and, it, and it's the idea that you're not supposed to laugh at certain things. And um, so, and on the other hand, people are to a certain degree personifications, or cartoons are personifications of people. Like a lot of the Looney Tunes characters and uh, all these guys like Bugs Bunny and um, Daffy Duck and whatever. They are in fact sort of realistic people and personifications of those realistic people. And so I thought about it going the other way, like what happens when the cartoons return back to who they were personified of? And what does that person look like after he's, you know, he started out as a person, became a cartoon, lived that l world, and then came back to human. And the, what has he morphed <laughs> into? Does he look like he did before, or is he now, you know, forever, you know, transformed by his cartoon self into what he is today? So I like... Um, and I also always loved the use of cartoon language in like Ed Ruscha's early paintings and in, in Warhol's when he did Popeye and uh, you know, Superman and um, I thought it was a big pop statement to bring that language in. But I think the, um, I think the interest is that it's a, it's a, it's a sort of a, an entry into a certain kind of uh, serious um, component of the human psyche that will open up their mind to a serious way of looking at something and at the same time they might get a kick out of it. Sometimes I just care about the diagonal motion of a drawing. I just care about where it goes on the, on the paper. I'm not really concerned too much with what it is. In the late 80s, there was a moment when I was trying to 
come to terms with, like, you know, I always thought what was incredible were these artists that had names for their art, like Cubism, Impressionism, uh, you know, uh, Abstract Expressionism, this, that, the other thing. And I remember Robert Rosenblum, this um, famous art historian, he said, what do you call what you do? And he said, what is it, neo-surrealism? What, what, what do you call this stuff? I said, I don't know, let me think about it. And then I said, I guess you could call it artificial realism. And it would be, you know, allow for a painter to go back and paint somewhat realistically, but to represent that which is artificial in our world. So it would be more like a very accurate painting of something totally artificial. And then they came down to the idea of the behavior of, uh, the sort of artificiality in, in the human behavior. And that was another thing that I started thinking about is the sort of artificial nature of certain, uh, I don't know uh, what you want to call it, personalities, okay? And um, just kind of finding all these different ties between uh, the self, the appearance of the self, the essence of being, Things like reading things like Heidegger and reading Kant and understanding what they were talking about when Kant was trying in his book about beauty and talking about what is beauty, you know? And his definition was beauty is that which uh, pleases without interest, which is a very ex extraordinary kind of thought, that which pleases without interest. And um, so I thought, yeah, you know, that which is real, but is also a representation of what is artificial, is kind of an abstract thought coming from there. But now, flash forward from 1987 or 88 when I wrote that to where we are today, fake news, everything is artificial realism. So talking about politics, you watch the news, you don't know what they're talking about. You know, all you hear about is fake news and uh, the phenomena of social media and that 90% or 30% of everything coming through social media is being propagated by you know, trolls and bots and all this sort of crazy artificial intelligence. And everything is about you know, artificial realism now. It's gone from an artistic concept to a, a, like a daily chaotic political concept where we don't really know what realism is at this point because it seems to be so artificial and it's so um, it's so staged that and so scripted and the scripts are meant to divert uh, or de disinform and um, from whatever reality is actually happening and so you don't know well what's the reality we're being diverted from what are, what are we being uh, differentiated from? You know, who are we and what are we, what are, you know, it's like that Gauguin painting. Who are we, where do we come from and where are we going? Um, it's kind of tough to say right now, but it is pretty clear that the world has become a sort of a, uh, an artificially, you know, realistic one where the reports coming in from one country or another or this country or that country or discussions with global leaders are filtered to us in such a way that we don't know what they really said. We only get an idea of what they said and then there'll be various pundits that will be on television. What did you think about the way, you know, Putin and Trump's, con how do you think their conversation went? You're like, 
who would know? It wasn't recorded. So all we're going to get are these strange shadows that are um, cast down upon us and sort of moving all the light out of the way. And um, so one thing I can say is that art is one of the most sort of um, truthful uh, experiences and truthful things that we have in our world today is that art is the truth and everything else is a lie. I'm hoping to express, you know, and I know this is probably not true, but that anybody could be an artist. That anybody that has anything going through their mind and that can take that what goes through their mind and just somehow visually materialize that will be able to express the way that they think. And that and at the same point, I'm hoping to express, you know, the multiple variations of the way I approach humanity and the way I approach the portrait or abstraction, which is to, to me an abstraction is to some degree what's in the mind and a, and, a, and a portrait is what's of the body. And um, given that I love making drawings, that's one of the most sort of pure examples of how you can uh, exhibit what you think you're good at and also what you think would be inspirational to others in terms of, hey, I could pick up a pencil you know, and a piece of paper and just draw what's going through my head. It doesn't have to be a, a doctrine of a certain, you know, art historical concept relevant to our time. Take a couple colors. I hope the audience experience the way their minds work, that they go in and they say, I think like that, but I would never express that on a piece of paper, or I would never know how to, or maybe I can, but you know, I haven't. And that they are open to the idea that anything's possible. And, but also that they do understand this idea that these works of art are really the truth, that there's nothing behind them that's not visible to them right away. So I just hope they have a, um, a good experience and enjoy a sort of the traditional medium of, of drawing and see how it's still alive. That, that um, art doesn't die and uh, these um, practices of artists that have been going on since the cavemen are still happening today. Complete drawing.